You know, I think the challenge with addiction is we often try to control somebody else's addiction. As a parent, as a family member, there is this desire to make them stop when in actuality it is the person's choice. The things that we can control about the relationship is how much we help them, what areas we're willing to be involved in in their life, how frequently we speak to them. Those are the things you can control. You can't necessarily stop someone from using drugs or alcohol. You can't say, I love you and it's hard for me to see this. I love you and I wish you were choosing something different, but you can't make them stop. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest and returning to the podcast is Nedra Glover-Tawab. Nedra is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Drama Free, and Set Boundaries, Find Peace. Nedra is a licensed therapist and sought-after relationship expert, and she has practiced relationship therapy for more than 15 years. Today on the podcast, we discuss the biggest mistakes parents make when raising their kids, how to effectively support yourself and your child if they're battling addiction, how to enforce healthy boundaries with someone that's in the thick of their addiction, what you can do to prevent yourself from being manipulated by others, how to determine when it's time to cut someone out of your life, how to not become a prisoner of your past, why you can still spend time with family members who don't want to change, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Nedra Glover Tawab back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Nedra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Good to see you too. We're going to go all over the place as far as what we talk about. I think where I want to start is parenting. And what I want to talk with as far as parenting is mistakes that parents make. So what do you feel are the, like, say, three biggest mistakes that parents make when raising their kids that aren't so obvious that can lead to them struggling perhaps with addiction, mental health issues, trauma, and stuff like that? You know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see, and I see it with children and I see it in adults when they talk about childhood is not having a supportive adult who sees them. Oftentimes, adults feel like key issues are not as important, that what they experience is not that big of a deal. But I remember, and I'm sure you can remember, Doug, like when things happen in our lives, it was a big deal when my parents broke up or when we had to move or when I had to switch a school or when my grandmother died. Like these are a really big deal and I don't remember people talking to me about this. So if we can just recognize that the, the things that are uncomfortable for adults are also uncomfortable for children, if we could talk to them about what they're experiencing in their lives, we can have healthier children. A lot of times we teach kids not to talk about their problems by not talking to them about their problems. How can parents learn to like, communicate with their kids and relate to them in a way that these kids not only feel understood, but the parents can then understand 
like what their kids need in moments like that? You know, as adults, when you have a tough day, often you may call a friend. I know I call a friend and I'm like, girl, guess what just happened? So-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Kids need that same level of support. So how was school today? What happened when you saw your dad? How was your visit with your dad? What do you think about me doing X, Y, and Z? Like really talking to kids about their lives. Often adults are so caught up in their own stuff that we forget that the kids are present. We forget that they're having an experience with what we're experiencing. I know that so often adults are just like, you know, kids won't remember this. And it's like, we remember so much stuff from childhood. We remember when a parent argues. We remember when our parents don't get along. We remember when someone treated us a particular way. I just had an interesting conversation. My mom just visited and I had an interesting conversation with her about one of her siblings. And I've never seen this sibling of hers as a nice person. You know, I said, you know, I don't have a relationship with them because I've never known them to be a good person. And she said, I remember when they were a good person. And I said, okay, not during my lifetime. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) not during my lifetime. And a part of that is because this person had an addiction. I don't ever remember this person as a sober person. And so my experience of them is very different. And I was never asked about my experience, but I certainly experienced this person in a certain way. And I think sometimes parents, adults, have this idea of how we want things to go for children when kids are actually developing their own ideas, their own perception of events and parents can really impact that by having conversations, talking through things with kids and not always telling kids how to feel, what to think, but just letting them freely think about things. You know, there's a lot of talk now about emotional neglect. And I think that it's not uncommon for anybody born before 2010 to possibly have experienced some emotional neglect because parents didn't know that they should talk to kids necessarily. Parents didn't know that, oh, wow, kids are people too. You know, they were, it was not necessarily an encouragement, but now we have many adults who don't know how to process their feelings, don't even know how to identify their feelings, don't even know how to properly be in healthy relationships with people because of the emotional neglect. So now so many of us are having to figure out like, oh my gosh, like how do I recover my emotional self? How do I show up in relationships? How do I even process discomfort? You know, so many adults don't even know how to process having a bad day without cussing people out, without going off on someone or hitting someone. Those are things that can be modeled for us in childhood. Those are things that can be processed with us in childhood that many of us miss out on. So would you say like one of the biggest keys to being a successful parent is making sure that you are like dealing with your own present day stuff so that, you know you can model healthy behaviors for your kids? Ugh, that sounds like such a big deal. (laughs) As an imperfect parent myself, I don't think parents 
are supposed to be perfect. I do think what's really helpful for parents is that they recognize that they are imperfect, that they are willing to acknowledge their mistakes and correct them. I think sometimes in an effort to correct our mistakes, we do the work for other people and it becomes codependency. You know, I've seen so many parents become codependent with an adult child because they didn't do some of the parenting and they refused to acknowledge it. So now your kid has this drug habit and you're buying them drugs or you're letting, because it's like, oh my gosh, maybe there's something, there's no acknowledgement of, oh my gosh, there is something I didn't do here. So now there's this over parenting of the adult child. And so I think one of the things that, that parents can do that can be really freeing is to say, oh, I didn't teach you how to cook. Oh my gosh, I, your father and I, we were very messy when you were younger. I didn't realize how much that impacted you. If we could just acknowledge whether it's in presently stuff we're doing or things that we noticed that we did when a child was younger, it can really help the child say, okay, yes, that is my thing. And we can equip them with some tools even still to do better. So let's go along with this example, because I know this is something you mentioned you want to talk more about. It's like, let's just say you've, you're now, somebody's a parent, they have an adult child who's in the thick of addiction, in the thick of some severe addiction stuff, they're struggling with their mental health. What is the process like for that parent to be able to handle the situation effectively, but also take care of their own mental health? You know, I think the challenge with addiction is we often try to control somebody else's addiction. As a parent, as a family member, there is this desire to make them stop when in actuality, it is the person's choice. The things that we can control about the relationship is how much we help them, what areas we're willing to be involved in in their life, how frequently we speak to them. Those are the things you can control. You can't necessarily stop someone from using drugs or alcohol. You can say, I love you and it's hard for me to see this. I love you and I wish you were choosing something different, but you can't make them stop. You also have to recognize that addiction is not a choice. You know, I think often with addiction, I hear, you know, sometimes adult children say my parents chose drugs over me. And it's like, eh. you know, I think if we were being reasonable about this and we said drug or child, most people would say child. But I think when there's an addiction, it's not that easy, right? It's, I feel like I need this thing to do anything else. <laughs> so it's, it's not really a person making a choice over you because addiction makes you powerless. That's a part of having an addiction. And I think when you don't understand addiction, you can see an addict as a person who is choosing to engage in this destructive lifestyle as if it's fun. And I, I think it's lost the fun appeal. Maybe when they first were using it was fun, but now it's something they have to do like drinking water and eating food. It is a must. It is no longer a choice. Right. You brought up a really good point in that it's, they're not, you know, a parent is never going to be able to be able to get somebody else to change. They can't control what they do. This person, while addiction in itself isn't necessarily a choice, this person is making their own decision and choices that are impacting their lives, their behaviors, their relationships, and, and so on and so forth. What does the boundary enforcing process look like? 
Like how can a parent coexist with a child or a loved one that's struggling with addiction? And when might be a time for them to set a more permanent boundary? You know, I, I think when you find yourself enabling the child or any family member, when you find yourself enabling someone, when you find yourself constantly talking about the struggles that they're having, also if you find yourself trying to make them change their behaviors, it's time for you to get some boundaries. You know, I think as long as the world has existed, there's very likely a chance that there has been some addiction to something. You know, even before whatever new drugs are out, there was something else. So I think it's one of those things that it's really tough to watch. And we also have to acknowledge that it's something that we can't control. So if you are an addict, what kind of relationship can I have with you? Often we think if someone has an addiction, the only choices is to have a relationship that's codependent with them or to not have a relationship at all. That's not necessarily true. There are ways to show up and have a relationship that you can with a person who has an addiction. It might not be you talking to them every single day. It might be every Sunday you go to IHOP. I don't know. You know, it might be you calling them on their birthday. It might mean, you know, you, you see them once a month. It might mean you take them a meal here and there. It may not mean that you're in the day to day thick of it. You know, so I think that's something that you have to sit with yourself and maybe say, what am I able to do in this relationship? How am I able to exist if I don't, you know, I don't have to end the relationship with my child, my brother, my, my whoever, because of this addiction, but how do I want to be in the relationship with them? In the situation that you just brought up, some of the examples that you provided, it was in the context of somebody maintaining a healthy boundary while keeping that person in their life. What might be some things that that addict might do to the parent or to the loved one that might force them in a way to just cut them out of their lives completely? You know, I, I think the dark side of addiction is stealing and lying. You know, I think not every addict can maintain employment. And when it gets to that point and they need resources, unfortunately, family relationships are injured because they, they will either steal or they may lie. And I think that, you know, I've heard some really interesting things like, you know, so-and-so can't come inside my house, they can sit on the porch. Or when I meet with this person, we go to a new place or I will take my key to my house from this person. So there are boundaries that people can be in relationship, but knowing that this person has a likelihood of taking something from you. I think also there is, you know, hearing a lot about drama sometimes and storytelling and, you know, these sort of things. Like how often do you want to hear about the drama that this, this person has in their life because of their addiction. You know, sometimes when a family member gets, you know, two, three, four DUIs, it's like, okay, I can't understand how this is everybody else's fault anymore. You know, so you can decide how much energy do I want to give this? And sometimes 
because you are maybe, you know, outside of addiction, you may say like, well, just stop drinking or just, you know, sometimes we give it a lot of energy and we're trying to convince them that their behavior is wrong or inappropriate. And I think people mostly know right from wrong and they're doing this because of the addiction. So sometimes shaming a person, making them feel bad, trying to make them think more reasonably, those things aren't effective. And it requires a lot of energy to keep having those conversation with a person who isn't ready for that level of change. And so sometimes what you could do is just listen or decide this is not a good time for me to listen about these things that are really dramatic or draining for me to hear. And addicts are also master manipulators coming from somebody who was a recovering drug addict. And so with that said, if a parent's listening to this, what can they do to understand A, whether or not they're being manipulated or not, and B, how to prevent somebody from trying to manipulate them? Well, manipulation is only effective when it works. You know, I think with addiction, there is a coding of denial for some of us. We want to believe they need this $20 because their car actually broke down. We want to believe that someone broke in their house and stole all their stuff. And, you know, but it's like, how many times do you hear these outrageous stories that don't happen to the majority of population happen to this one person who, you know, has an addiction? <laughs> it's like, it's like they could be writing these stories for a daytime drama and this would be great. But in real life, this is impossible. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think we can feel sorry for people. I think we could feel bad for people without giving them our resources. Sometimes the resource is just saying like, oh, that was tough. Oh, you know, here is another resource for you. I've heard addicts say things like, oh my gosh, I need money. I don't have any food. You know, there's a soup kitchen on such and such street. Have you went by there? They don't want to hear that <laughs> because it's like they really want your money. So how do you get through the story creating? How do you start to recognize these are parts of the story that they're telling to elicit some, you know, some compassion, some money or something? Part of it is families need more support around what addiction is. And so I think groups like Al-Anon are really wonderful for helping people see how others deal with the manipulation, see how others move away from codependency and enabling. It's really helpful to know that this stuff is common. Your child, your uh, parent, your sibling, they're not unique in what they're saying. This is something that happens throughout the community and you may need other people to help you reinforce your boundaries and to really stick to them and set them because this is a part of what happens. You are not the only person. So Al-Anon is a wonderful resource. I think there are some wonderful books. One book that I often recommend is, what is this book? Um, the Complete Family Guide to Addiction. And it talks about what is an addiction? How can you actually help a family member? How do you set boundaries with family members? That is a really helpful way for you to figure out, this is how I can be in this person's life. And this is when I need to remove myself. Staying on this thread, because this is something that a lot of obviously parents struggle with, what makes it more challenging, there's, there's emotion involved. 
Like you want to see your kid do well. You want to believe your kid kind of like you touched on a few minutes ago. Is there anything that you recommend parents doing in that moment when these kids are coming to them or a loved one's coming to them with this story? An example, do you recommend them taking 24 hours to come back to them so that they can like settle into a more logical space? Do you recommend them calling somebody for support in that moment? Like how can parents navigate that situation so that their, their emotion doesn't take over and they're able to communicate with them logically? We will get you back to this episode of The Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com slash Again, it's earthechofoods.com slash to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. I love the way you said take that 24 hours to just really think about it. Think about how to respond. Having a support person who understands addiction in the same way that you understand addiction again, you know, having some group support. I'm sure there are, you know, I say Al-Anon, but I'm sure there are tons of groups for family members of addicts to be a part of, to gain some information and to be in community. So we need those sort of things to sometimes energize us. It's kind of like having, you know, a personal trainer, right? Like you need that support to be able to even say these things sometimes when a person is manipulating you, you need that level of support. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of this putting a bow on this, you've talked about some things that a parent shouldn't do when a kid's struggling with addiction, enabling, shaming them, you know, trying to change them. I know that it's ultimately going to be up to that person to make that decision to change, but is there anything that a parent can do to help kind of guide them towards that decision to making the right choice? Lead in love, you know, we can always let people know how much we love them and how much we're concerned about them and how much we want them to be healthy. Loving practices, you know, there may be times where a parent does want to pay their child's rent because if they don't pay it, they'll be homeless. You know, so you may say, hey, I'm going to pay your rent and that's it. And it's paying it directly. You know, I think sometimes doing things directly is more of a boundary. I, you know, there was a situation with an addict in my family where they needed some financial support. And I said, well, give me the number to the company. <laughs> you know, I, will, I will help you if I pay directly. I'm not giving you any money to pay any bill. <laughs> right. So either you're going to get this bill paid or you're going to have a, a credit on your account because you lied. But either way, the money is not going to you because you're not a trusted source. So would you say that's a perfect example of helping versus enabling? Like helping is paying the bill for them if they truly need it. And enabling would just be giving them the money to pay for it. 
think paying their bill consistently could be enabling, especially if, you know, I think a one-off for support is different than continuous support. Like there are times where someone says, you know, we all need help at times. Doug may call and say, hey, I need help with, you know, my daycare bill, I'm unable to make it. Now, if Doug calls every month, I have acquired a new bill. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now paying Doug's daycare bill. (laughs) So I don't have any kids in Doug's daycare. (laughs) So that's, that's now a new problem for me. So if there is an occasional assistance, that's very different than a routine assistance. That's well said. And so before we move into like the self-accountability and responsibility of what somebody can do to break the cycle and start to change some of these family dynamics, I want to kind of finish up talking about parenting. I know you said like one of the biggest mistakes you see with parents now that's, that's a less obvious one is when they're not supporting their kids and communicating with them in a way where, where kids feel understood and heard. Is there like, what would you say like there are two others that you see now where people maybe aren't aware that this is a big deal, but it's actually creating long-term problems for the kids? Oh my gosh. One of the really big ones is parents, their relationships with the child's father or even their husbands, you know, if they're still married. I think contentious relationships that kids have to witness or be a part of is very unhealthy for kids. How parents get a divorce, what happens after those divorces. You often hear that divorce is a trauma and I want to rebuke that. Divorce isn't a trauma. You know what's a trauma? The way the parents treat each other, whether they're married or divorced. And kids see a lot. They see, you know, maybe mom trying to manipulate the kid to get the kid on on the side. I've worked in child protective services. You have some parents that would try to get their kids to lie and say, say your dad is beating you. Say your dad is molesting you. Can you imagine, you know, the person who becomes an adult who had to lie and say that they were being molested? You know, it's. It's so interesting, the things that are done to kids. And then when they show up in the world as an unhealthy adult, it's like, I I don't know what happened to them. (laughs) It's like, my hands are clean. I didn't do anything. It's like, oh my gosh, the things that we create for children sometimes are so, so, so impactful. And because we are unhealed humans sometimes, We don't even recognize how we've impacted them. There was a person I was talking to recently who was, oh my gosh, this person's children, she just speaks, the children speak to her so poorly. And I said, you know, she wasn't a good mother. And I'm not saying it's okay for her adult children to speak to her like that, but we do have to recognize that she created some trauma for her children. And what they're expressing now is guess what? Anger, anger for how they were parented. And so I I get it. You should not talk to a human being in a certain way. However, they're very angry and I understand why. It's so true. Like, I mean, you're, the way that parents raise their kids significantly impacts the way that people behave as adults. And let's get into it. So what are the signs you think of somebody who's an adult now that their childhood and their family dynamic is impacting them or is holding them back in their life? 
the way they show up in romantic relationships, the way that they build community or choose not to build community. Sometimes the way people are savages in their careers um, and their desire to achieve by any means necessary. Sometimes the way that, that people believe that overworking will correct any presence of trauma in their lives. I mean, there are just so many things that show up in adulthood that are that were rooted in childhood experiences. And often children have been made to feel really bad about being honest about those childhood experiences and being honest with the people who created those childhood experiences for them that they're now still sort of dealing with. I mean, I used to work with kids and teenagers early in my career. I would say maybe about the, I've been a therapist 15 years. I'd say about half and half, half of my career has been with kids. The other half I've moved towards adults because these kids grow up and I recognize the need for continued support of their childhoods. Like witnessing them in the childhood was one thing, but witnessing them in the adulthood that's highly impacted by the childhood is a whole different thing. However, I feel like in adulthood, we have more power to change our circumstances. In childhood, I will say that there is less power to change your circumstance because you are at the wheel of the adults around you. Once you turn 18, it's like, oh my gosh, sky's the limit. What do you want to do? You want to go to college? You want to go to trade school, community college, get an apartment? We, let's get some stuff now. <laughs> now we can do some stuff. But before then, especially if there isn't significant abuse, it can be challenging to empower a kid in an unhealthy environment. But for adults, you know, a lot of the work is really helping them unravel all of that damage and figure out how to live a more empowered adulthood. One of the questions I had before going into this is how do we balance personal responsibility like in the present day moment versus like pointing the finger at something in the past? Like how do we know when it's like warranted versus like us actually looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, you know what, like this is on you. That's really tough because I think a lot of things are on us, but I feel like that's weighted, right? Like, I feel like your past is like, it's on us, but this is your past pressing you down, right? It's like, it's like how can you get ahead of some of these things? Like, I think there is some empowerment needed, but I also think that the disempowerment wins sometimes. In Drama Free, I talk so much about the things you can do to change your to change your relationships, to take control of your adult life. But I also feel that there has been so much suffering that many adults, you know, I've had clients as old as 80 years old. And guess what they're talking about? Childhood. Can you imagine that? Like childhood is like 18 years. And here it is, you're like 80 
And you're like talking about what you didn't get, what you didn't receive and how that impacted your 40 year marriage and how that, you know, like all of this stuff, like it just lives in us because those 18 years are so vital to decisions we make in the future. And if you don't correct that at any age, I mean, it could be, it could be 20, it could be 40, it could be 60. If you don't get control of that, you will always be controlled by it. So what steps can somebody take to control that and then unlearn some of the stuff they may have learned in childhood so that they can have healthier relationships as adult, heal that trauma, and then live a fulfilling life? I think the first step is really being honest with yourself about what happened and how it happened. Really dissecting your childhood. In my childhood, mostly I felt, you know, did you feel unseen? Did you feel a lot of sibling rivalry? Did you feel that maybe not having a finance, a lot of financial resources always left you wanting for more. We have to think about how things impact us currently. Like, you know, I'm always thinking about the why. Like if I want a new car, I'm like, why do I want a new car? Do I want a new car to impress other people? Do I want a new car because I need a new car? Do I want a new car because I feel like I deserve it? Do I want a new, like, what is your why? for many of the things that you do, even in adulthood. What things about your partner remind you about other things in your life? I think there are so many things that we don't really dissect. And when we're not thinking about that stuff, we are just unconsciously making very important decisions. And sometimes those things really backfire because we're not thinking about, oh my gosh, like I'm trying to, be really advanced in this way because I'm trying to erase this old image of Doug. I want everybody to now see me as the good guy. So I'm going to overcorrect. I'm going to always be good. And it's, you know, when we get into that level of thinking that how did things impact me? What happened to me? What is my story? What are the, you know, if I had to write a book and there had to be some sort of story arc about my life, what would the story be? What is my biggest tragedy? How was I impacted by, you know, various things that happened in my life? I don't think we really sit with ourselves. Most adults are, we're driven by distraction. When I have clients who struggle with like social drinking, when they're like, ah, you know, I, I don't know how to tell my friends I don't wanna drink. Like people ask me so many questions and, you know, I, I say all the time that so many things happen in childhood and guess what we didn't have a drink <laughs> it was like if you had a bad day at school you just had to go home and watch looney tunes it wasn't like you know what i had a bad day i gotta get me a drink <laughs> it was like you know we just learned how to deal with it so that tells me you you still have the ability somewhere in there to deal with it? How do we tap into the ability to just sit with discomfort again? Because you already have it. It's just you're choosing to distract yourself. You're choosing to not be present in your life. How do we make you more present? Do you ever think that looking back in our past and trying to figure out the why, while it is very useful, like you mentioned, do you ever think it becomes detrimental where people are on this journey and then they're like, you know, on their healing path for say like, 
two years, three years, four years, five years, and they're, everything that happens, they're like, oh my gosh, did that happen because of my childhood or what my mom said to me or my dad said to me and that where this now that doesn't become like an actual reason. It becomes like an excuse for poor behavior. You know, I think knowing why it happened is really important, but I think correcting is even better. It's interesting when you meet an adult who's like not accountable for anything because their parent caused everything. Well, I, I don't work because my parent never blah, blah, blah. I didn't go to college because my parent never blah, blah, blah. Or I don't know how to manage money because my parents blah, blah, blah. It's like, you're 40. You were a child for 18 years. You know, hey, you've, <laughs> you've not been a child for a very long time. <laughs> how do you overcome this story of their creating stuff? They created something and now it's your turn to undo it. It's your turn to teach yourself some new habits, to exist in a different way. We have to take control of that. But for some of us, it is easier to be the victim than to be a person who does something about those things. The victim, you don't have to do anything. It's like constantly, it's someone else's fault. It's never me. I didn't do anything. I'm not in control of my life. Everybody else is controlling my life. And, you know, that can feel better than saying, you know what? I want to do some things. I want to figure out how to manage these areas of my life. So how can somebody improve their relationship with a traumatic event or something that may have happened to them that was unfortunate in their life so that they can go from being a victim of their circumstances to a hero of their journey. One way we can improve it, you know, we already talked about that, which is acknowledging it. And I think not being a prisoner to it is a really big one. Often when we have traumatic things that happen, we want to avoid them. And avoidance is not the best strategy for moving through anything. I think about like a fear of flying. And you'll have people say, I'd never fly because I'm afraid of flying. And I always think, well, you're never overcoming your fear if you're avoiding your fear. That isn't moving you closer towards being a world traveler. <laughs> That's moving you closer towards being a recluse. So if you really want to deal with the fear and the anxiety around something, sometimes it is best to, to face it and to really have some exposure to those things and not always run away from them and saying, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't look. Now there are some things, especially when our safety is, is in question. You know, there are some parents who are abusive. They were abusive in childhood and they're abusive in adulthood. There are some parents who did terrible things to their children. There are some siblings who did terrible things. There are some aunts and uncles and cousins and, you know, like there are some things that happen to people and you may not want to keep those relationships. I've noticed a lot since we started with addiction, you know, one of the times of year where addiction goes up is when? when holidays. Holidays. What do we do on holidays? We gather with our families. We gather with our families. What does that tell me about families? There is some trauma there. There is some dysfunction there. If I got to get high to be with you, if I can only see you when I'm drunk, I think we have a problem. Now, many people will keep having that problem every year. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be around my family. I must go to the liquor store before. <laughs> it's like, there's a different way to exist. If the only way you can be in a relationship with someone is to be unwell, I wonder, I wonder. 
You know, so a lot of my work gets really busy around the holidays. I've had some Christmas Eve phone calls. You know, I've had, you know, working on the day before Thanksgiving because people are highly anxious, depressed. I'm slipping back into some some unhealthy behaviors because they have to sit with their parents who are hypocritical or, you know, maybe narcissistic or addicts themselves or be with the sibling who absorbs all of the energy in the room and, you know, all of these different things that people experience in families. And so to that, I say, how do we do this differently this year? So how do people do it differently? Like what are some of the, I know your, a lot of your work is based in boundaries and I obviously I know that's important for people to develop healthier patterns as adults. You talked about embracing discomfort, which is important as an adult, but what are some other tools that you think people should not only develop, but practice like every single day that are paramount for being able to coexist with other family members that aren't doing the work as well as making sure that they're going from surviving to thriving in their life? You know, there are certain things in those relationships that you'll have to consider. You know, maybe you want to see your parents, but maybe you don't want to stay with them for the weekend and you need to get an Airbnb. Maybe you want to have family dinner, but you don't want to stay around and watch football after. Maybe you want to see your nieces and nephews, but you don't want to you know, communicate with your sister during that visit. So, you know, there, there are things that you have to figure out. What are my sore points? When I see my family, what are my sore points? Is it them bringing up how I was in childhood? Is it them talking about my weight? Is it them talking about my lifestyle? Is it them, you know, like what are the things? And that's where you can start to create like these parameters with those really unique things. I've heard a lot of adults say it's stressful for them to, you know, maybe being in the home with their parents and their parents don't like, oh my gosh, you don't want to stay with us because that's seen as a sign of closeness. You're in the house with us, but we all can't be in the house with our parents. And it's okay if you recognize that and say, hey, I need my own space. I don't want to be at your house where anybody could come over and because I don't talk to all the anybody's. You know, so I don't want to be in the space. I don't want to make my bed or I don't want to, you know, use your kitchen in a certain way. Like you can figure out what those touch points are for being with family and maybe shorten your time or transition away from being around them all the time. Maybe going for a walk to break up that being in the house with them. There are so many different things you can do and you have to get really creative. Like what is the thing that bothers me when I'm with family? If a person brings up blank, this is how I will change the conversation. It's almost like writing a plan to engage. You're mentioning like certain boundaries you can put in place when you're coexisting with family members that you want to keep in your life, but you're not like cutting out. I want to kind of sidestep a little bit and talk about like how you can communicate with family members or you're in a relationship with somebody. Let's just say that they're not into quote unquote doing the work. Like they're not listening to podcasts like this. They're not, they're not reading your books, but they're not bad people. They really aren't doing anything wrong. They're just not into like personal growth and talking about trauma, which again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think sometimes people will just cut people like that out of their lives because they'll just assume that they don't get me. They don't understand me. How can somebody learn to have relationships, effective relationships with people that aren't just interested in doing the work? Yeah, I think the first thing is to try to not make them do the work. 
you know, often it's like, have you heard this podcast? Will you read this book? Here's this uncomfortable conversation. And it's like, they're not interested in any of that. And maybe what you need to do is watch YouTube dance videos with them. You know, where can you meet in the middle? Where do you meet them where they are? If there are certain conversations you can have with them, have those conversations. There are other conversations that you can't have with them. And let that be okay. Let that be enough for the relationship to continue to exist. Everyone isn't going to be deep with us. Everyone isn't going to be highly connected and ready for change. That's just a part of, you know, the way the world works. And so when we want to keep a relationship with someone, maybe a part of our healing is not making other people do the work not trying to control other people. That's such a hard thing to do, especially like when if you're in a relationship with somebody and they've, they know they need to change, you know, they need to change and it's not happening fast enough, or it is a loved one or it's something else in your life. Like, how do we let go of control? Realize you don't even have it. Mm. We don't even have control. We never had control. So it's so interesting that you say, let go of it. You didn't have it. (laughs) (laughs) What are you letting go of? You never had control. So many people try to control other people and their behaviors. Yeah, it's an illusion. It's like yeah. a magic trick of control. That's what we're, we're, we're giving up this illusion control. That's what we're letting go of because we never really had control. But it's almost like we're saying to other people, the only way I can exist in this relationship with you is if you're as well as me. I see this a lot with like health stuff, right? Especially as you get older and your parents are, you know, you're like, you need to stop eating cake. You need to stop. It's like, you know, I hope when I'm 70, if I want to eat cake, smoke a cigarette, do whatever I want to do, let me. <laughs> like, leave me alone. <laughs> like, I just, I don't need a lot of, car- you know, so the only thing that you could do is really say, hey, when you come to my house, can you smoke outside? Hey, or you cannot bake a cake. So they don't even have the opportunity to eat it, but you can't control them going to buy themselves cake. And I think that's what we often try to do. We can only control our stuff, our space. We can't control anyone else. It's an illusion that we are constantly chasing. Like if I show them this thing, if they understand this about this thing, they will stop doing it with, you know, smoking in particular. I find it funny when family members are like, they've got to stop smoking. It's so unhealthy for them. I'm like, do you know how aggressive they've gotten with the wording on the packaging? It's like, you can die at this point is what the cigarette packages say. (laughs) They want to do it. (laughs) Like, I don't, I think if you're buying something that says that you're consciously buying it because you want to. So I don't know if someone's saying, Hey, you need to stop it for your health. Sometimes that causes more stress and it makes the person want to dig deeper into it because of their guilt, guilt around doing the thing. So you can't control what they're doing. I don't, I don't think the marketing is saying you can die, but it certainly says it causes cancer, not good for pregnancy, you know, all of these things. So We have to release in our healing, we have to accept that we don't control other people. It is only an illusion that we have this power over the lives of other people. Right. And I think with a family member, 
it makes it even more challenging because there's emotion involved. You know, we talked about that with people who struggle with addiction. I mean, it's not like you're waiting outside the gas station to tell everybody walking out with a pack of cigarettes to, Hey, stop smoking. Like you're going to die. It's normal. Obviously it's with, if with family members and, and it's like, we've talked about, like, you can't force anybody to change. You can set boundaries that align with your values. You can love them for who they are. You cannot judge them. You can do all these things, but you can't like force them to change. One thing I, I was thinking about as we were talking about coexisting with family is, you know, your book is called, you know, drama free, right? And how can somebody know this? And maybe they don't know what they're upset about with their family is actually valid, or they're overreacting and being quote unquote dramatic. What is an overreaction? And what is dramatic? That is subjective. That was a question that came in from one of my listeners. Yeah, I think that's very subjective. I think a overreaction is anything that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, it's like it could be anything. Like anything could be an overreaction. You know, it's like what's acceptable in that culture. People could deem it as, oh my gosh, you overreacted. I have to accept that some parts of what I do might be something that other people would identify as too sensitive, as an overreaction. Again, that's part of my healing, that everything that I think and feel, other people won't agree with it. They can say, oh my gosh, you're overreacting. Okay, and I still want it. So it's not one of these things that I need to go to everyone and say, do you think I'm overreacting here? Like, I really feel like, I think about my home, right? Like if I had a rule that anytime someone came over, they have to come in and jump up and down twice. Is that extreme? Maybe, but it's also my house. <laughs> so you could have, you could say, Hey, I'm not going to Nedra's house because when you come in the door, she makes you jump up and down twice. <laughs> like, you have a choice too. You don't have to do it. You can say, you know what? I'm not coming in here. I'm not coming into the jumping house. So it's, it's one of those things like, is that wild and crazy? Sure. But will people do it? Absolutely. I bet if I told like people to do that, they'd be like, okay, this is weird. And then they would come in. So it's, it's completely subjective. You will find people who say, oh my gosh, that's an overreaction. And you will find other people who say, no, I think that's appropriate. So it's it's a hard thing to answer. You know, I think we we have to be in community with the people that think like us. And, you know, there is a community of people who don't. But I like what you said that I think it really comes down to like effectiveness of how the situation turns out. Like if the situation got worse, then maybe there was some level of overreaction that happened or ineffective communication or whatever that led down that path. And I think it just comes down to being able to have better conversations. And like, as we kind of bring this conversation to a close, like one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, how does somebody have effective communication with a family member that they've discovered maybe like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe didn't treat them well. Maybe they've discovered they've been neglected and they want to essentially call them out for it, but they don't want to do it in a way that's disrespectful or hateful. You know, I think that can be helpful when you're interested in continuing in a relationship, right? You want to be in a relationship with someone and you just want to bring up 
oh my gosh, you know, 15 years ago, you did this thing. And I, I think you bring it up at any time and you just let them know, like, you know, I'm in a space of recognizing or reconciling some of the things that happened to me. And this is just one of the things. And I know that there's nothing you can do about what happened in the past, but it feels really good for me to just let it out. I like that a lot. That's super effective because it just seems like it's super effective because you're not really expecting anything from them. You're just expressing yourself. What about when somebody apologizes? Like, how can you know if somebody's truly sorry? They won't do it again. <laughs> you know, in families, unfortunately, there is this apologizing and people keep doing stuff. <laughs> it's like, I apologize for cussing you out. And then it's like, they cuss you out next week. It's like, why did you, what happened? <laughs> so like, stop apologizing and just, just keep doing it because <laughs> you're not really sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, it's a good point, right? Cause I mean, the best apology they say is change behavior. The last question I do have for you is this, is we've talked a lot about, you know, addiction. We've talked about family. We've talked about breaking the cycle. We've talked about change behavior. We've talked about a lot of this stuff. Like when is it time for somebody to completely walk away from their family? Hmm. You know, I think that's a series of questions. What is the damage in the relationship? Can it be repaired? Is it something that is continuous or is it something in the past? Has this person changed? Are you willing to change to remain in the relationship? Is this a relationship you can live without having? Is this a situation where you're doing it out of anger or are you doing it out of the need for emotional wellness or safety? There are so many questions we must ask ourselves before ending a relationship. We never want to end a relationship to hurt the other person. We really want to do it to improve, you know, our lives potentially. There are relationships with family members that that can hold you back. You know, I think about family members who might be hypercritical. There are some people who have parents who say, you can't do that. You wouldn't be able to do that. There are some siblings or, you know, who may be competitive in a way that holds you back from living a better life. And in those situations, you have to figure out, is this relationship worth my life? It's a good way for us to end our combo because I know we've talked about so much in the context of coexisting with people and also how to have or coexisting with people that maybe you don't see eye to eye with or that are mistreating you or that won't change and that are maybe behaving in a way that you don't agree with. And I think that was just an excellent place for us to close on. So, so Nedra, I wanted to thank you once again for coming back on the podcast. If people want to connect with you, if they want to buy a copy of your latest book, where's the best place to do that? Well, you can go to my website, nedratawab.com. Everything is there, all my events, my books, free worksheets, lots and lots of resources and information about me. Amazing. I will make sure to in include the link to that in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We covered so much in this conversation. So whatever resonated the most, whatever you learned the most, share your biggest takeaway, tag Nedra, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.